I, I am sure in a gathering this large this evening, we have some fanatical gardeners here tonight. I'm sure there are some of you, and you just love the garden. And it isn't as it is with some primarily to get away from people. It's actually because you genuinely love gardening. Now, I have to make a confession here this evening. I am the total opposite. I hate gardening. I am sorry to say that to those who love gardening here. And indeed, when I'm in the garden doing what has to be done, I have to be honest and say I have the most unchristian thoughts about Adam and Eve. <clears throat> if they had only behaved themselves, these weeds wouldn't be here. But I mean, I am so ignorant of gardening, I sometimes don't even know the difference between what are flowers and weeds. You know, that's how impoverished I am. But I wonder, have you ever thought about this? Gardens are actually incredibly significant in the story of salvation, in the story of God's purposes for people. Gardens are incredibly significant. Just think about it. First few chapters of the Bible, what's the context? A lot of it. It's not just the creation of everything, but a garden. And in many ways, I think the story of salvation and the story of Holy Week is the story of gardens. The Garden of Eden. I mean, it's arguable it's about two gardens, or indeed it's arguable it's about at least three gardens. The Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. <coughs> or the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. Easter Sunday morning, Christ is raised from the dead. The, the tomb in that garden is empty. And if you just think of it, think of the contrasts between the Garden of Eden and the garden we're looking at tonight and that we heard about in that reading from Matthew 26. In one garden, a man disobeys God. In the next garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, a man obeys God. In the Garden of Eden, man says, not your will, but mine be done. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, a man prays, not my will, but Father, yours be done. There's a world of difference between those two prayers. <clears throat> In one garden, we see naked selfishness, the selfishness of sin, and it leads to death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't see even a hint of selfishness. In contrast, we see selflessness that also leads to death, but it's a death that leads to life. What a contrast in what happens in these gardens. I love that song of Graham Kendrick, one of my favorite hymns, The Servant King. And one of the verses, as you know, goes there in the garden of tears, my heavy load he chose to bear. He chose to bear. In many ways, the garden of Gethsemane could be called 
decision garden. As we've just been singing a few moments ago, he chose the cross, and he did. It was a choice Jesus made. He didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it. Look at what he prayed. Verse 38 in Matthew 26, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says to his disciples, stay here and keep watch with me. And then he goes a little further. He falls on his face to the ground and he prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Wow. He is willing for whatever. Above all else, every fiber of Christ's being wants to do the will of his Father. He chooses the cross. I don't know if you've ever been to what we call the Holy Land, Israel. I've been twice. The first time I went was with a group of people who were considering becoming people who would take a group to the Holy Land. So we got it at a knockdown price, you know? Like, folks, you need to understand, I'm 50% Balamina blood, so this was a foretaste of heaven to me. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is, I cannot tell you what they crammed into six days. Oh, my word. It was unbelievable. We were up at some unearthly hour in the morning. We weren't getting to bed till midnight. And when people in the few years after that said to me, have you ever been to the Holy Land? I would say, yes, I ran where Jesus walked. (laughs) And that was the truth. It really was. But can I tell you this? Of all the places we were taken to in Israel, do you know the place where I was most profoundly moved? At the place which is reputed to be the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw the place where Jesus is presumed to have died. We saw an empty tomb. We saw different things. We went to Bethlehem to see where he was born. But of all the places, it was that Garden of Gethsemane where I was so profoundly moved. I will never forget it. In fact, the guide even told us there were trees there that were probably there when Jesus actually prayed in that garden. But what struck me in a way that it had never struck me before was in many, many ways, the cross was won in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had a choice to make. We see his humanity in a way that we don't see it anywhere else, I think. And he chose the cross. In this garden, I believe we read of the most selfless prayer ever prayed. Now remember, it was the cross he was facing. This wasn't, will I go to her for afternoon tea today or will I not? Will I go there or here for holidays this year? We all make decisions, but listen, there was no decision like this. Nobody had to make a choice like this before. 
So here is the most selfless prayer ever prayed. Here is the most important decision ever made. If the cross hadn't happened, you and I are lost completely, utterly, forever. Here, I believe, was the most intense battle ever thought, fought, the most intense personal battle ever thought, fought. Indeed, it's arguable that the most defining moment prior to the cross of Jesus Christ, prior to Calvary, the most defining moment was this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was battle time, big time. It was struggle. It was profound pain. It was an agonizing personal battle. Read the accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane in the different Gospels, and we'll see that. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. To the point of death, he falls to the ground. He's not standing with his arms raised. He's not even kneeling. He's prostrate on the ground. Weeping tears. Sweating blood, one of the gospel accounts says. Here is battle big time. It's decision time. The greatest decision ever made was made here. And if we're thinking about this garden, we cannot think beyond struggle and suffering because that's what this was all about. This is where we see the pain and the consequences of our sin. This is where we see the crushing weight of our rebellion and disobedience because Jesus knew the reality of what was ahead of him. But here we also see the surrender of a person's will to the purposes of God. Total abandonment. Could I also suggest that here we see that Christianity is no fairy tale. Christianity is not some kind of spiritual Disney World amusement park. And sadly, that's the way some present it. It's not some kind of Teletubby make-believe. No, it's firmly founded Christianity on the rock of history and on one man who's the most important person in human history, the son of a carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. As one commentator expresses it, Christianity is based on the majesty of what has happened. Jesus is not myth, he is not legend, he is not fairy tale. Here is a real man who really prayed, who was in real pain, who was experiencing real temptation, who was going through real struggle, and he really died, and he really rose again. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, that Jesus in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Folks, this isn't some hallelujah party. This is pain in the extreme. These tears are what I call holy water. This is Jesus going through 
the fire. And indeed, the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Do you hear what's being said here, please? Some people give the impression that the Christian life is really painless. We are so full of joy that we never experience struggle or disappointment or loneliness or sorrow or heartbreak. No, no, no. That is not genuine Christian discipleship. Our Savior is a suffering Savior, a wounded Savior, a Savior who knows all about struggle and suffering. And friend, if you're going through struggle and suffering right now, whatever it is is going on in your life, please know Jesus knows all about it. You are not alone. Do you notice what Matthew tells us and the other, the other gospel writers tell us? He went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he leaves the majority of them here, if you like, on the outskirts of the garden. But he goes further in. And notice he takes three with him. Peter and the sons of Zebedee, Peter, James, and John. A kind of inner core. You see, Jesus had his friends. Do you? Honestly? Isn't it interesting that our British government recently has appointed a minister to oversee loneliness? Because so many people in the United Kingdom today are profoundly lonely. One of our daughters has a hearing aid in both ears, and not long ago she was with a specialist, and they were talking about hearing aids, and um, the girl she was talking to said to her, you know, Ali, um, some hearing aids now have voices, and the voices will give you instructions and so on. But she said, I can turn those voices off so that you never hear them. And said, you know, just recently an elderly person within, was in with me, and I said to them, you know, I can turn off the voices to which the elderly person said, please don't do that. Many times for weeks on end, that's the only voice I ever hear. That's Northern Ireland, folks. There are so many people profoundly lonely. They don't have friends. I remember not so long ago chatting with an elderly person who'd been talking to a young girl. The young girl was going through a time of incredible struggle, loneliness. And the older lady said to her, do you not have any friends? Oh, she said, yes, I do. I have 367 friends. Oh, really, said the older person, didn't know what she was talking about. She said, how often would you see them? Oh, I never see them. They're all on Facebook. Folks, friends can't be real friends if we never see each other. Friends are those who encourage us, support us. They're with us when things get tough. They're not just with us at celebrations. 
I remember one time some years ago, my wife and I were going through a very difficult time. And two of our best friends who lived over 70 miles away heard about it. They got into the car, came and said, we're taking you out for breakfast. We'll never forget it. Jesus took his closest friends with him so that he would have company during this time of incredible pain and struggle and suffering. Sadly, they fell asleep. Sometimes our friends let us down, don't they? But honestly, tonight, do you have friends? Are you someone who's lonely? Because Christ knows all about loneliness. Just fast forward a few hours and listen to what he cries from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And most of his disciples had fled. His friends had gone. My wife, who is far wiser than I, has a wonderful saying, and it's this, if you want to have a friend, be a friend. Are you showing friendship to people? Or are you trying to live in miserable isolation? Listen, I know we all have different personality types, and I so know some of us just love to be on our own. Men, we love to be in that man cave. Ladies, we just love to get that cup of coffee when nobody disturbs us. We just love to get that seat in the train and nobody sits beside us. You know that feeling? But folks, go right back to that first garden we were thinking of. And what did God say? It is not good that man should be alone. We were made for community, folks. We were made to be together. Of course we need our space, but we also need community. Friendship is a basic human need. Do you have friends and are you a friend? If Jesus needed friends and his closest friends were Peter, James, and John, we read about them here, how much more do you and I need friends? And please remember this. There's a, a, a verse in the Bible that talks about there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And do you know who that is? Jesus himself. Two are better than one. Book of Ecclesiastes because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pitying anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Friends, in this man who prayed this incredible prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you and I have the best friend of all. There's a lovely little video on YouTube it's a song between a dad and his little daughter, Claire, who's just three or four years old. And you know what they sing to each other? You've got a friend in me. 
It's wonderful. Look it up. And little Claire just sings it and looks with that look of love up in her dad's eyes as he's playing the guitar. Made to be together, that's our destiny. And friends, Jesus Christ is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Do you know his friendship? I can honestly say that I thank God for good friends. And indeed, I can also say I never experienced loneliness in Christian ministry until I'd been a bishop for a couple of years, and then I did. And do you know one of the things that I did that just helped so much? Prioritize seeing friends. What a blessing that was. My dad died when I was eight years old. My mum died when I was in my late teens. I'm an only child. I cannot thank God enough for Christian friends who showed me love and understanding and encouragement. I know the church gets criticized from time to time, and sometimes rightly so, but can I tell you this? There's no body of people on planet Earth like the church of Jesus Christ. And I can honestly say one of the greatest blessings in my life has been a Peter and a James and a John, and most of all, a Jesus. A while ago, I came across a book called The Dance of Hope, written by an American bishop who tells the story of when he was at university in the early 1950s. He used to spend some hours every week with a student who became one of his best friends, a student called John. And this fellow student, this friend, was blind. And Bishop William would regularly read for John so that he could keep up with his work and so on. One day, William said, John, how did you lose your sight? And John said, well, I had an accident that happened when I was a teenager. And when that accident happened and I lost my sight, I felt like giving up on life. And he said this, and I quote, when the accident happened and I knew that I would never see again, I felt that life had ended. I was bitter and I was angry with God for letting it happen. And I took my anger out on everybody around me. I felt I had no future. I wouldn't lift a finger on my own behalf. I would let other people wait on me. I would go into my bedroom. I would shut the door. And I would refuse to come out except for meals. And his friend William said, but John, you're not like that anymore. That's not the kind of person I've got to know. What happened? This is what John said. He said, I'll tell you what happened. One day in exasperation, my dad came into my room and he gave me a lecture. He said he was tired of me feeling sorry for myself. He said that winter was coming and he said, son, it's your job to put up the storm windows in this house and I want to make sure you do that again and that you've those storm windows up by tonight. He walked out of the room and closed the bedroom door. And John said, do you know what my dad said made me so angry that I resolved I'm going to do it. And as I started doing it, I kept muttering to myself, 
as I groped my way around the garage and I found the windows and the stepladder and the necessary tools and I started working, I kept muttering to myself, they'll be sorry when I fall off the ladder and break my neck. Little by little, he groped his way around the house and he got all the storm windows up before supper time. And then William said, as John finished the story, I could see his sightless eyes start to mist up. And he said to me these words, I later discovered that at no time during that day when I was doing that work was my dad more than four or five feet from my side. Wow, what a dad. What a dad. And the son didn't know until later. Folks, there's friendship. And that's a little picture of the friendship of Christ. He's with us always, whether we have our sight or lost it, whether we're well or sick, whether we've just heard we've had cancer or we're enjoying the best of health, whether we're struggling with arthritis, cystic fibrosis, MS, business problems, loneliness, whatever it is, when you and I are disciples of Jesus Christ, he is with us always. Hallelujah. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And even when we're going through the struggle and the suffering, we can know that his promise still holds true. I am with you. There is somebody here tonight and you now know why you're here. Because you've been struggling. And it's just captivated your soul that in the midst of this struggle, the valley of the shadow of death, the pain of the illness, maybe the betrayal, a broken trust, you're not alone. For Jesus Christ, the friend, the best friend, is with you. His promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Peter, James, and John may have fallen asleep. Christ will never fall asleep. He's with us 24 Seven. And then just in the last couple of moments, just look at this incredible prayer. If you just change Matt, please, thank you. Just look at this incredible prayer that he prays. If ever you want an example of surrender, here it is. Not as I will, but as you will. Isn't it interesting how the first time he prayed, how it starts, if it is possible. If it is possible. You know, let's be honest. There's a strain of teaching in the church today that doesn't allow for if it is possible. No, whatever our circumstances, we're just meant to be that package of joy. 24-7, isn't that right? Never meant to shed tears, never meant to ask questions, 
never meant to express doubts, never meant to be honest. Read the Psalms, folks. Here's a man who trusted God, believed in God. Every human emotion is there. Anger, the big questions are there. Let's be honest with God, folks. God is far bigger than our greatest doubts. God is far bigger than our biggest questions. And he understands our pain and what we're going through. Yes, let's thank God for our friends and how they can help us and all of that. But let's also be honest with God. And when we're angry, let's just tell him, Lord, I have a problem with this anger. When we're in pain, let's not say, I'm not really in pain, Lord, when we know fine well we are. Let's just tell him, be honest. Let's not cover up. I mean, it's preposterous. Imagine trying to hide something from the God who knows everything about us. What are we thinking of? And Jesus was totally honest. Like, I think we have real prayer here. Lord, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But then look at the surrender. But not as I will, but as you will. And then look again at verse 42. But Father, my Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. May your will be done. Folks, there's real prayer. There's startling, naked honesty. Not my will, Lord, but yours. Every follower of Jesus Christ will go through Gethsemane experiences. Please let's not think that once we begin to follow Jesus Christ, we'll be just floating in the heavenlies on a hallelujah cloud every day and every night. What Bible are we reading, folks, if that's what we think? Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. Romans 8, suffering and glory, glory and suffering, suffering and glory. Read about the groans in Romans 8. This side of heaven is a mixture of suffering and glory. Heaven will be all glory. Here on earth we get a foretaste of heaven. There it will be all heaven. And boy, have we a lot to look forward to. Do you know one of the things that has impacted me as I get older Nearly every man and woman that God has significantly used is a person who knows all about struggle and suffering. Read some of the great Christian biographies. It is phenomenal what some of these Christian men and women have gone through. The pain, the suffering, the loss, the heartbreak. One of the most famous Christian leaders in the world today is Rick Warren, his wife Kay. Do you know that several years ago, Their 27-year-old son, Matthew, committed suicide. He had wrestled with depression for years. A few years ago at the Alpha Leaders Conference, I heard Rick and Kay Warren interviewed by Nicky Gumbel. It was one of the best interviews I've ever heard in my life. You can access it online. Go to the Alpha Leaders Conference, Rick K. Warren. I would make it compulsory listening and looking at in every local church if I could. It's incredible. 
And Rick Warren says in that interview, and this is a year after Matthew died, he said, there hasn't been a day in the last year when I haven't cried. I miss him so much. And then he said this. He said, you know, I sometimes imagine Matthew speaking to me from heaven, and he says, Dad, you got it wrong. And I, like, this is one of the most famous Christian leaders in the world. Dad, you got it wrong. Son, what do you mean I got it wrong? Well, Dad, you said heaven would be great. It's far, far better than you said it would be. I like that. And that's what we have to look forward to. No more suffering. No more cancer. No more arthritis. No more pain. It's heaven, glory, glory, glory. But before we get there, it's suffering and glory. It's part of the package. We see it in Christ. And because of him, we can look forward to glory, glory, glory. So there it is, folks. When you and I pray, are our prayers like this prayer of Jesus? Not my will, but yours be done. You know, I think that prayer is more important than ever because you and I are being squeezed into a mode of thinking in our culture. And you know what the thinking is? It's all about me. I don't want to take a photograph of you. It's about me. Imagine we even call it selfie. And that's what life is about for so many people today. Selfie. Not the way of Jesus. He calls us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, so it's not about me, and follow him. It's all about him. Is that the way you and I are thinking and living a life of total, wholehearted, grateful surrender to the Jesus who surrendered everything for us? Well, hallelujah, what a Savior. And I suggest humbly tonight that the appropriate response from you and me is, Lord, whatever your will is, for me. That's what I want. It may involve pain. It will involve suffering. But Lord, I want to follow you, whatever. Let's just pray.